You're listening to the TB Pod, a podcast for clinicians and policymakers caring for patients with tuberculosis. In these podcasts, we chat with expert clinicians, researchers, policymakers, and advocates about their work in the field of tuberculosis. The TB Pod is prepared by the Australasian Clinical TB Network, ACTNET, and the TB Forum. You can subscribe on iTunes or download episodes through the ACTNET website. Podcast today for Axnet. My name is Dr. Andrew Burke. I'm an infectious diseases and respiratory physician at the Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane, and I'm uh, on the committee for Axnet. So it gives me pleasure today to, to welcome Dr. Ramy Arandi Adwa, who's been one of our respiratory registrars, so training specialists last year, and this year is specialising also in clinical pharmacology. And we thought we might change the the nature or the format of this podcast today, rather than just have a a direct Q&A session, which has been the, the case in the past for most of these, is that Rami and I are going to just talk about some interesting cases we've had relating to rheumatoid arthritis and the risk of TB reactivation and management of tuberculosis in the patient on, on disease-modifying drugs, which in countries like Australia and other high- and middle-income countries were increasingly seen. So welcome, Rami. Today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I thought maybe we might just start with a case that you and I were both involved in last year. And so I know you were the admitting doctor for this patient. So I thought we might just start with that case and uh, talk, discuss it around some of the clinical uh, aspects of it. Yeah, sure. So this case was a, a 41-year-old man who was a hotel manager uh, with rheumatoid arthritis. And he'd started adalimumab therapy, which is a, a TNF inhibitor, about 18 months prior to his presentation. And he presented with three weeks of non-productive cough, exertional dyspnea, drenching night sweats, weight loss and rigors. He had multiple courses of antibiotics with his GP without improvements. So that prompted him to come to the emergency department. With regards to his rheumatoid arthritis, he was also on methotrexate. And prior to starting the adalimumab therapy, he was screened for latent tuberculosis infection with a quantiferon gold study. And that was negative. Um, interestingly, he recently run an ultra marathon in Rotorua in New Zealand. That was shortly after he developed his first symptom, which was a cough. So when he came to the emergency department, he was febrile to 38.7 degrees, but he wasn't hypoxic. His saturation was 96% on room air and his respiratory rate was 17 breaths per minute. And his admission chest x-ray showed some increased peribronchial wall thickening. that was more confluent in the left lower zone. And he also had some crepitations there as well on exam. So we had a very broad differential at, at that stage. Essentially, we had a chap who had respiratory and constitutional symptoms. He was immunosuppressed. He'd recently run, you know, done this ultra marathon running through forested areas. So we thought an atypical pneumonia would be high up on the differential. Um, and so he was admitted overnight for antibiotics. We arranged multiple um, tests, including induced sputa. And he was feeling better the next day. So he was, he was discharged. He had urgent follow-up the following week. And when I saw him at that review, he'd, he'd significantly deteriorated so he had noticeable increased work of breathing at rest he was now hypoxic his sats were 92 percent on room air and it also gave us the chance to chase up those investigations in the initial admission uh, things like q fever mycoplasma and all of those plus more all negative so then we arranged a repeat chest x-ray and that had also changed quite a bit he had now you know had diffuse micronodular um, appearance in both lungs and that was it appeared to be the appearance consistent with miliary tuberculosis so he was obviously admitted urgently back to the hospital 
and we revisited some of his sort of risk factors, which there, there were none essentially. He was born and bred in Australia. He had no con no known contact with anyone with tuberculosis and never traveled to an endemic area. And his only recent travel was that um, trip to Rotorua to do the ultra marathon. Um, so that was his sort of history in a, in a nutshell. So when you, when you say he had induced sputa, I think you also checked yeah. for pneumocystis at that time as well? Yes, we did. Yeah, that's correct. And had, just to go back, had the chest X-ray changed in that week? It, it had it had yeah i think with with the i guess the benefit of a retrospectoscope you know you probably you may have been able to see some small nodules on the initial chest x-ray but i think at the that became a lot more apparent on that second chest x-ray he had as so there was a significant change in that short period okay so he had multiple negative investigations some worsening hypoxia and work breathing otherwise very fit ultramarathoner and yeah. you had a good clinical response to his adalimumab map. Uh, over the last months. Absolutely. So he he said that that was essentially life changing for him. And one of his main concerns with with this presentation was that would he have to stop his adalimumab despite having you know serious infection? That was actually his main concern. Which I think shows how much of a positive impact the adalimumab had on his rheumatoid arthritis control in his life. And you made that just just to reiterate. You made the important point. He'd been screened for latent tuberculosis. Uh, That's right. This. Yeah. So, absolutely. How was it? How was the diagnosis of tuberculosis confirmed in this man? So I think um, looking back at his symptoms again, he when you look at the symptomatology, it was quite typical of tuberculosis with his respiratory and constitutional symptoms. There was a clear risk factor that he had the TNF inhibitor. The chest X-ray itself was highly convincing of military tuberculosis. As we discussed, we exclude a lot of other respiratory pathogens, but eventually he went on to have um, his induced view to his check for acid fast bacilli, mycobacterial culture, and that's what really confirmed the diagnosis. He did have um, a CT, his, um, his thorax, abdomen, and pelvis, um, and that confirmed what the, the appearances of the chest X-ray and also had quite diffuse lymphadenopathy. So putting that all together, um, it was you know, it's highly suggestive of tuberculosis, but it was the induced sputum, I think, that, would, that gave us the microbiological diagnosis. And so the induced sputum, was that smear positive or what do you have to wait that, for cultures? That, no, so his was, um, yeah, it was scanty, it was scanty, but there was smear positivity. And then later on, it came back culture being culture, um, mycobacterium tuberculosis was cultured as well. And we were able to also do the gene expert test on the sputum as well. Um, and that confirmed that it was rifampicin sensitive. Okay, great. And how did he respond to therapy? It responded um, incredibly well um, because I think there was such a um, thought the, the pretest probability of this chap having tuberculosis was so high. We actually started treatment for him before we had the results of the gene expert back. And within four days, I think it was, his fevers had resolved, his hypoxia had resolved, and he felt a lot better in himself. So he had quite a significant improvement and it happened quite rapidly. And I think I recall his case it was a Friday. Uh, I think the initial induced sputum may not have been positive, but we started, decided to start TB treatment uh, before the others were back, mainly because we're going to the weekend and we were worried that he may deteriorate given this trajectory. And so uh, subsequent to his starting empirical TB treatment, his uh, results did come back and confirm that in subsequent sputum samples and it was fully susceptible. Yeah. So I, as a way of background, I saw him in clinic last week and he's now stopped his TB treatment. He did have liver function test arrangements toxicity and we had to actually uh, withhold his pyrazinamide in the end. So we went for a longer 12-month course by meeting pyrazinamide, but he's been uh, essentially cured as far as we know. And we still haven't found out a source for his TB. 
he does work in the hospitality industry in a hotel with lots of international guests and one can only speculate that's possible he may have got it in that role. So Rami, resources changed in rheumatology over the last 10 or 15 years and as a respiratory physician I find some of my most interesting referrals come from rheumatologists and uh, in terms of the actual treatments you've alluded to already for rheumatology, for rheumatoid arthritis and other, other arthritis tissue diseases, I'm going to just summarise the different uh, classes and how they may impact on somebody's risk for tuberculosis. Yeah, so um, the sort of disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs or DMARDs, they're sort of nicely split now into three sort of subclasses. So you've got your what's called conventional synthetic DMARDs, so that's drugs like methotrexate, leflunamide, um, sulfasalazine, hydroxychloroquine. And then you have your biological DMARDs. And those can then be sort of be further subdivided into TNF inhibitors and, and non-TNF inhibitors. So in terms of sort of TNF inhibitors, um, they've been around, well, the, the first one that was approved in the FDA in 1998 was etanercept. So that's where there's a, um, a TNF receptor um, that's bound to a protein um, as, a, as a soluble TNF um, receptor molecule. And then shortly after that, infliximab and adalimumab came, came about. And those are monoclonal antibodies directly against TNF itself. And the main difference between those two is that infliximab is a chimeric molecule. So it has human and murine elements to it, whereas adalimumab is, is, fully, is fully humanized. And there's been um, some more recent TNF inhibitor drugs that have been developed, pegylated, sertilizumab, and golimumab would be examples. And if we look at then the non-TNF inhibitors, um, that would include drugs such as tocilizumab, um, an anti-IL-6 antibody. So that's obviously in, in vogue at the moment, given its possible um, role in severe COVID pneumonia. There's um, ebartocept, which basically works by preventing uh, co-stimulation and um, activation of T cells. And there's rituximab, so that's an anti-CD20 antibody. So that's, a, a, I guess, a, a quick tour through the biologic DMARDs. And then there's an even newer class of drugs called targeted synthetic um, DMARDs. So that essentially refers to these drugs that are called Janus kinase inhibitors. And so um, examples of that of those drugs is tofacitinib, baricitinib, and they're not biological drugs. These are small molecules that essentially um, affect enzymes that are involved in um, intracellular signaling. So when a pro-inflammatory cytokine binds to a the receptor um, on, on, a, on a cell surface membrane, it then triggers multiple pathways, one of which is called the JAK-STAT pathway. And that then leads to transcription of more pro-inflammatory cytokines. So the idea of the JAK inhibitors is that they block one of those pathways and um, they've been shown to be as efficacious as some of the biological DMODs that have been used for rheumatoid arthritis. So they're definitely sort of new kids on the block and something that I think it'd be useful to be aware of. I understand, Ramey, some of those newer classes, those genus kinase inhibitors can be given orally as well, which would be an advantage. Absolutely, yeah. So I think for people who are needle phobic, that can be a, a major reason why they're not able to have biological therapies, which are either given intravenously or subcutaneously. So absolutely, it's a, a bit of a game changer to potentially have an oral option that's just as good as the biological drugs. And obviously, there'll be people listening from different parts of the world and availability of these drugs, we will know that differ in different parts of the world. But in terms of the risk of tuberculosis reactivating with these different uh, DMARDs, are there some which are, are more prone to TB disease or reactivation than others? Yes. So uh, the short answer is yes, there is. So the, the biological DMARDs that target 
TNF um, are certainly the ones that are associated with highest risk of, of reactivation of latent tuberculosis infection. And so then um, within, within the TNF inhibitors, there is a sort of a risk hierarchy. So it appears that infliximab and adalimumab have a higher risk of TB reactivation compared to etanercept. So etanercept being that, um, that TNF uh, receptor fusion proteins has a different, a slightly different mechanism of action compared to adalimumab and, uh, and uh, infliximab. And so this has all been born out of multiple, multiple studies, both in um, endemic areas with TB and non-endemic areas. So in non-endemic areas, um, it's been shown that with the advent of TNF inhibitor drugs, the, the risk of TB or the incident rates of TB went up as high as up to 20 times what the background rate was. Um, and then, you know, there have been studies, for example, a very recent study in Hong Kong, which is an endemic area, that again showed that the your risk of having to developing tuberculosis if you're on a TNF inhibitor is four times that compared to a non-TNF inhibitor drug. And um, again, there's that hierarchy where the risk is lowest with etanercept. Okay. And I, I guess just my own reading, a point to note is that people with rheumatoid arthritis have a higher baseline risk in the general population anyway, even yeah. without treatment with these uh, drugs. So some yeah. studies suggest, you know, up twice or even up to five times population risk if you just have rheumatoid arthritis in pre-treatment. So I suppose also that many of these people have prednisone and there'll be other confounders for uh, other risk factors for TB reactivation other than just being on the uh, TNF alpha inhibitor. Yeah, so, so Raimi, you mentioned that etanercept had a lower risk of tuberculosis. Why don't rheumatologists just give everyone at risk for TB uh, so I think um, I think for those who are at risk of TB, it certainly is the the drug of choice in the context of rheumatoid arthritis. But there's a couple of reasons why you couldn't just blanketly use it for everyone. So um, firstly, in terms of the administration, etanercept is is weekly, whereas adalimumab is every other week, and so there's a bit of a convenience factor for patients. But I think more importantly is that. Um, Etanercept is not effective in inflammatory bowel disease and in, in uveitis, whereas adalimumab is actually effective for those conditions plus others, plus other examples, particularly in pediatric case, uh, pediatric pathologies. So adalimumab appears to be the sort of drug of choice for, for the rheumatologists. And I think from my reading, if I had to sort of pick one biologic to be familiar with as a non-rheumatologist, it would be it would be adalimumab for that reason. And I think just to note, in Australia now, I think in terms of drug costs to the health system, these disease-modifying drugs probably occupy about three or four of the top ten drugs in Australia. So they're certainly very widely widely prescribed for good reasons, you've said, with uh, very good clinical outcomes. So in terms of the actual time of onset, from the time you start a, say, a TNF alpha agent to the median time for development of tuberculosis if it were to occur, what sort of timeframes are we looking at? Is there much variation between? Yeah, there, there does appear to be a bit of variation. So um, a large study that was done in 2010, this is, I think, from registry data um, in, in England, following up patients on these biological therapies. So about 10,000 patients and 3,000 each of either infliximab, um, intanercept or adalimumab, then followed them up for a, a you know, period of years and then were able to identify any, um, any infections that develop. So with regards to tuberculosis reactivation, infliximab appeared to have the shortest um, time, about five and a half months. 
Um, Etanercept was about 13 months and Adalimumab was 18 months, which was actually exactly the time um, in our patient's case as well, which was a bit, uh, which was interesting. So there does appear to be a difference. Why that difference is there is not entirely clear, um, but there does appear to be, um, yeah, a difference. So there are obviously median durations. Is there any, yeah. any evidence of like the longest or shortest duration that you came across? Uh, I'm not sure about the the, the ranges um, within that. Certainly, um, the original study from the FDA in 2001, so that was three years after sort of etanercept and infliximab came about, the um, the reactivation of TB happened quite rapidly. Um, and so that's what led them to think this, this must be reactivation of latent disease rather than sort of newly acquired um, infection. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure about the, the, um, the, the ranges of those. Um, so Andrew, with this uh, with this chap, um, I guess the the reflex thing to do would be is immunosuppress. He's got a, a life threatening infection. You know, surely you should stop the all the immunosuppressant drugs. Um, but we we didn't do that. Are you able to explain what the rationale was for continuing his immunosuppressant therapy? Yeah. So so one of the concerns about stopping steroids or other immunosuppressives is the possibility of immunoconstitution syndrome being uh, initiated. So just to explain that, sometimes we see, particularly say HIV AIDS, we traditionally the most common where if someone's TB or uh, hemocystis and they're, they're on treatment for that and then they start antiretrovirals with a, a prompt immune response, we could suddenly see a, a worsening of, of their clinical state. So for example, we might see somebody with PJP suddenly get a florid uh, pneumonitis, perhaps six to eight to ten weeks into HIV therapy, although again the, the ranges can be as broad as from one week to, to one year. And this can result in uh, worsening hypoxia and, uh, and a clinical crisis, which can often require initiation of steroids. That's well described in HIV AIDS. You also see, and we can see that in tuberculosis as well, and probably where that we see that more commonly would be in, say, in the HIV setting, they could get TB meningitis and suddenly get a critical uh, decline in their GCS or a you know, space-occupying lesion from TB meningitis suddenly becoming uh, you know, suddenly becoming clinically quite significant because of surrounding surrounding edema from a uh, immune reconstitution process. So up until that point, the TB has been flying underneath the immune radar to some degree, but with the return of the immune response, suddenly the immune system starts to attack the dying bacteria. Is how I describe it to my patients. You also see in tuberculosis what's called a paradoxical reaction. So even people who are immunocompetent, we see this most commonly perhaps in TB lymphadenopathy where they're on TB treatment and you know, four weeks into therapy, suddenly they get swelling of their uh, TB lymphadenopathy and everyone panics and thinks they're on the wrong drug. Maybe they're not taking their medications. Maybe they've got MDR-TB. In fact, what we're seeing is a immune response to dying mycobacteria. So sometimes this would be a reverse uh, situation where might have someone who's already immunosuppressed and the, the, the temptation might be to stop the immunosuppression for the reasons that you said. The concern with that is that you may then see an, a, an immune response, which can be worse than the TB itself. And certainly in DMARDS, there's been certainly case reports and quite a number uh, to show where people have got worsening of say TB meningitis after stopping uh, DMARDS in the setting of, uh, of tuberculosis. What we're seeing is 
you know, sometime after drugs are worn off, and it could be from one to two weeks, the, the half-life of adalimumab, terminal half-life is about two weeks, you suddenly see a worsening, um, which can require the initiation of high-dose steroids or re reinitiation of their DMAD that they're on. Uh, we've also seen that in lymphadenopathy, where DMADs have been ceased and TB lymphadenopathy has got uh, significantly worse. So as a general rule, uh, I think if people are on the right therapy, so we know they've got susceptible uh, TB, so we're not dealing with MDR-TB, I think it's quite okay to continue the immunosuppression as a general rule. Maybe There may be times when they may differ, but as a general rule, I think it's probably quite safe to do that. Similarly to this fellow, by the time he started his TB medication, his stats were 90% of room air. Uh, he was he, had, he was tachypneic. And if he had, if he had, and he had miliary TB, so he had disseminated TB. Uh, so if he had had a, an immune reconstitution reaction in that setting, he certainly could have ended up in critical care. So we, we, he maintained his rheumatological therapy throughout, throughout uh, his TB treatment uninterrupted and uh, there were no concerns. He had, as you say, a very prompt response, which was maintained. So that's a, a general, um, I think, learning point for us. Having discussed with pediatric colleagues in the state, they certainly have had cases where they have ceased DMARDs in children with TB lymphadenopathy and have got that worsening, their immune reconstitution, where they've had a you know, really significant increase, a painful increase in size for a child with, a, with surgical lymphadenopathy. So, I should also, um, also note, Rami, sorry to interrupt that people tend to. TB treatment is just as efficacious in people on these drugs uh, as uh, the general population. So the, the high cure rates that we enjoy in Australia are generally maintained in this patient group. Um, and we've mentioned a couple of times that this, this gentleman was screened for latent tuberculosis infection before he started his adalimumab therapy. Could you just give us a, a rundown about how should we screen for TB in patients who are about to start biological therapy? Yeah, so I think our yeah, rheumatology and gastroenterology colleagues are very uh, good at doing this, but no test is 100% um, effective in ruling TB out. So traditionally we've had the MAN2 test or tuberculin skin test, uh, but in probably the last decade or so, this has been largely replaced in Australia and other countries with the quantifurin gold, uh, which is a more specific test for tuberculosis. The disadvantage of the tuberculin skin test is that people have to return after 48 to 72 hours for a reading. And we know in the real world, many people don't return for a second reading. Also, supply of the purified protein derivative or PPD that our TB nurses use for skin tests has become a little bit more limited at times. And also the number of nurses who are credentialed, at least in Australia, to perform the MAN2 tests has, has diminished. Perhaps because there's been less requirement for them to do it as more of us have used a quantifurin gold. So for various reasons, the quantifurin gold tends to be used as a point of preference. It is more specific for TB. There's less false positives with environmental microbacteria. Previous BCG vaccine uh, doesn't interfere with this, this interpretation as well. And we also have a mitogen control, which allows us to determine the cell mediated immunity. So if there's an indeterminate test, as there often is in people who want steroids or disease modifying drugs, we have that control built in. And the general feeling is that they're both probably equally good in terms of uh, diagnosing latent TB infection. So this fellow did have a quantifurin gold. It was negative. Now, in somebody who was traveling to and fro an endemic country, one might say, well, maybe he was reinfected uh, after that test. But as you pointed out, he really didn't travel overseas at all. So it's likely that this was a false negative test in his case. 
Um, we have had another patient sadly die of disseminated TB despite having a negative chronotherone gold. She was an elderly patient, probably in her 80s, who was put onto disease-modifying drugs, had an appropriate workup, no specific risk factors for TB other than her age. And uh, she sadly developed disseminated TB within a, about a month of starting disease-modifying drugs and, and succumbed very quickly. But another lady get multisystemic TB who sadly was one of the rare patients who wasn't screened for latent TB infection. So that may be a preventable case of TB in, in her situation. So certainly the good guidelines from this American Rheumatology Association, other comparable groups of the Australian Rheumatology Association have uh, a good decision tree to help with screening. So I think the other thing to say, Rainey, is that we're not just doing a, a tuberculin skin test or a quantifier on gold. We have to look at their overall risk profile. So that includes have they come from an endemic country, do they have chest X-ray changes consistent with old tuberculosis? Do they? We have to rule out active TB. So if they do have a positive uh, screening test for latent TB, we have to then consider maybe they have active tuberculosis. And we now probably believe that it's not as easy as a dichotomy between latent TB and, and active TB. There probably is a, a gradient that exists. Uh, and there's this concern about subclinical TB sometimes being present. So if somebody has a, anyone, regardless of even prior to their result being known for quantiferon gold, we should do a, a history, uh, consider their exposure history, country of origin, and use a, the quantiferon gold or MAN2 test in conjunction with those other, those other factors that we need to consider. If they do have a positive quantiferon gold, then we would generally treat for latent TB infection. So as you've said, the risk factors for, well, the risk of getting TB would be probably 10 to 20-fold higher with disease-modifying drugs or anti-TNF-alpha drugs. If we look at, say, HIV-AIDS, that would have about an 80 to 100 times increased risk. So um, certainly the number needed to treat to prevent one case of active TB would be quite low in this situation. So sometimes in when we see people who've had a quantifier gold from a GP who have no specific risk factors, if they have the older age group, sometimes we just select not to treat them with anti-TB medication. We just might observe them with chest x-rays every six months for a couple of years because we might feel that the, the risk of side effects from their TB drugs may outweigh the potential gains. But in the great majority of these patients, regardless of their age, you're probably going to have a, a bias towards treating, a strong bias towards treating related TB infection. Thank you. So I think the, the main points, uh, thanks Rami for discussing that today. So it is a problem we see commonly now in our TB clinics. We're getting patients referred to us with positive quantiferon goals by rheumatology colleagues. Uh, occasionally, you know, once or twice a year, we're, getting, we're seeing people on these drugs who have been appropriately screened still having active tuberculosis. And I think just, just one thing I neglected to mention at the start when the discussion was that people on these medications present in a different way with tuberculosis. So they're more likely to have extra pulmonary TB. Um, they may be less likely to present with a classical sort of suppurative lung disease, you know, highly productive sputum cavitary lung disease. So we need to, we need to be vigilant for this uh, atypical disease presentations for TB in this patient group, more likely to have extra pulmonary TB uh, and uh, may have atypical features that you've already described. So thanks very much, Rami, for your time. And thanks, everybody, for, your, for listening today. Thank you.